Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Namaste, yogis. This is Andrew Seeley here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed podcast. Today, I am grateful for you for taking the time to tune in and become part of this growing community. You are appreciated. Today, we explore the depth of vulnerability and the beauty of pure authenticity with Caitlin Turner. You may know her by her Instagram alias, Gypset Goddess. She is known for her outstanding success on Instagram, collaborating with some of the most prolific brands to share her lifestyle and passion for fashion through yoga. She is known for her outstanding success in collaborating with some of the most prolific brands to share her lifestyle and passion for fashion through yoga. So I just thought, goddess, how perfect. It's a very foundational archetypal idea in yoga sure but all women are goddesses and in practicing yoga we tap into that inner goddess and you know there are all these directions that you can take it so once I put gypset and goddess together all of a sudden the light bulb went on and it was like yes this is the right name this is what I was trying to say journey with us beyond the superficial to reveal the origin of shine the heart as we shed light on why we do what we do and how we can do it more with natural, genuine intention. Get ready to fly your heart flag high as Gypset Goddess shows us how to shed judgment and fly on this episode of the Yoga Revealed Podcast. Namaste, yogis. This is Andrew Seeley here to welcome you to the Yoga Revealed Podcast. And I am absolutely excited to have the one and only Caitlin Turner, otherwise known as Gypset Goddess, here on the Yoga Revealed podcast today to share her story with you. How are you feeling today, Caitlin? I'm feeling great. I'm really happy to be here with you. Awesome. It's like we look at these opportunities and we're like, huh, this is another time to be together that's absolutely epic. And we've had some pretty epic times together. It's true. This is another time for us to be together at our house. (laughs) (laughs) It's really funny because I feel that um, there's not that many people that know that we live together. And since we've been living together, things have been really amazing. 
Yeah, they're really taking off. I think that we complement each other pretty nicely. I highly agree with that statement. So, I want to start at a place where I didn't know you, where we didn't even know each other. Probably didn't even have Instagrams back then. But I want to hear about when yoga was first revealed to you. Well, yoga was first revealed to me... Well, you know, it's kind of funny, because it was revealed to me many times, but I'll tell you about when I first accepted it. So I was a rhythmic gymnast growing up with the ribbon and the ball and all of that. And once I quit practicing rhythmic gymnastics, I had always been really flexible and had naturally great balance. So a lot of friends had said, you have to try yoga. You'd love it. You'd be so into it. And I don't know why. Maybe it's that I'm not great at following authority, but the more people who told me how much I would love yoga, the less I wanted to try it. It was this <laughs> odd, like, opposite correlation that started happening. Um, but then, finally, this guy that I had a crush on invited me to a yoga class. And Always how it happens. I said yes with ulterior motives, but then I ended up sticking with the yoga and not the guy. <laughs> That's so funny. That's the same way that I got into yoga as well. Really? For a girl? Yeah, a girl invited me to a Bikram yoga class, and she was really awesome, really awesome girl. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'll, uh, I was like, yoga is for girls. That's what I first said. That was like <laughs> literally the first thing that came to my mind. I was like, yoga is for girls. I was so narrow-minded, and soon after, she basically came over, and I had an ankle injury from soccer, and she was like, look, if you sit on the bench and you're just not working out your muscles, they're just going to get tighter which means you're going to continuously injure them. And she was a nutrition major, so I basically understood that she knew that she was what she was talking about. So I went to a class with her, and immediately it was, bam, stuck. Hooked. It's funny, my first class was actually a Bikram class, too. Really? I feel like there are so many people out there that share that commonality. I wonder what the percentage is of yoga practitioners in the U.S. that took a Bikram class as their first class. I feel like it would actually be a surprisingly high figure. That would be a great statistic to know. Because, It'd be interesting, right? Yeah, Bikram yoga is vast. They're all over the place. And I would say they're definitely one of the most accessible but at the same time... <laughs> Least accessible. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how those uh, inverse and opposites work. So you ended up going to this class for the first time, and this guy just introduced you to the class? It's funny because he didn't really give me a good precursor of what I was in for. I had always traditionally thought of yoga as just people in a room breathing together, doing weird poses that involved <laughs> flexibility and some level of balance. I It had never occurred to me to consider that the room could be 110 degrees <laughs> or however hot a Bikram room is. And I mean, I kind of expected to go in there and have it be really easy and just, you know, shock everyone. I think my ego was definitely, like, playing a pretty big role that day because I figured I would go in and be this, you know, yoga novice that was perfect at everything hmm. and, you know, get all these shocked glances from the people around me. But instead of doing that, I was like a melted puddle on the floor in child's <laughs> pose for the majority of the class. So right from the start, yoga was a practice of checking my ego at the door. Wow, that's a beautiful way of being introduced to yoga. It's very humbling. <laughs> I would say that mine was very similar as well. Um, <laughs> within the first few classes, did you end up going back or was it something that you just went one time and you were like, ah, forget this? 
No, I st- I went back, but not actually to Bikram because that was just a little bit too static and mm-hmm. you know monotone for me. So I ended up switching to one called Sumit's Yoga that is a lot like Bikram, same poses but moving through them in a vinyasa way with the transitions and everything, mm-hmm. which is actually even harder than Bikram because you already have the heat of the room that's external, and then you're moving in a vinyasa flow that's like building up your internal heat so I found that to be even more challenging but you know the hardcore athlete in me really responded to that it was like what I'm not the best at this well just wait a minute because I'm going to be (laughs) so did you continuously go back to these summits classes and really begin to take heed to learning exactly how to get through these classes the most efficiently and beautiful as possible well yeah it's funny I mean I think it's, you know, getting used to sumits is like getting used to any kind of yoga class. Whether you have the heat or not, it's still a matter of familiarizing yourself with the names of the poses and the general rhythm and cadence of the class. I found that my energy dispersal and maintaining that and monitoring that was sort of the key to getting through sumits yoga classes. At first, I found myself spending a lot of energy just even thinking, put my hand where? where's my foot supposed to go? What am I doing now? And once I at least was familiar with the poses and the general sort of flow of the class, then I could take the energy that I had been spending on that and put it into other aspects of the practice. And that helped me learn it a lot. I think it's like that with most yoga classes, though. You go and it's a completely foreign thing at first, and then the more you get comfortable with it, the easier it is to practice through an entire class. So at this time, you weren't doing rhythmic gymnastics at all, and you had transitioned now to practicing yoga. Around what age were you? I think at that time, I was probably about 22 or 23. Cool. So you were like done with college, like living your life, doing it big. Um, What point were you like, oh my goodness, like I could totally see myself becoming a yoga teacher? It just happened naturally and by accident, I guess. Uh, Well, I didn't excel immediately in Mm -hmm. my yoga practice. I definitely, you know, was ahead of the curve. And within, I would say, I think they had some sort of plan that was like two weeks unlimited yoga for $20 or something like that. So I signed up for the two-week plan and I think by the end of the two weeks, I was fairly proficient in like you know, the general practice of yoga in terms of the asana and the physical practice. And, you know, that ability didn't exactly escape the notice of the studio owners and teachers. So they actually asked me if I wanted to become a yoga teacher because they thought I would be really good at it. And I hadn't entirely considered it. And I guess just like so many other things in my life, when presented with the opportunity, I took a gamble and said yes. And here we are. Wow. So they just approached you and immediately knew that you were going to be good for the job. Uh, You know, it's funny. They actually didn't know how good I would even be for the job. I think they just looked at my physical practice and the way that I was able to physically learn very quickly. And they thought that would make me a great teacher. But Sumit's Yoga, much like Bikram, is a scripted class where you need to memorize all of the dialogue. And I have an insanely photographic memory. So... (laughs) I think before my training was even over, I was teaching practice classes at the studio and I was kind of ready to go Mm. right out of the gate. So you were able to actually visualize the sequence and then therefore memorize it and be able to reiterate it based upon your visual memorization? 
Exactly. I mean, it was sometimes difficult to learn it word for word because my impulse would be to work through it in a more intuitive way, like be able to picture the flow in my mind and then just talk through what I'm seeing. But when you have a scripted thing where every word and the choice of every word matters, then, you know, it's it can be a challenge sometimes because it's not necessarily what you would naturally say, but what you're supposed to say. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. So at this point, you had taken on teaching at Sumitsyoga and were they pretty stoked on you? Like, tell me about like your first, uh, I guess your final. Did you have to do a practice teach? I did have to do a practice teach, but... You know, I, it was so long ago now uh, that I don't remember the entire process, but I feel like I did my practice teaching class before training was even over. I was kind of a week or two ahead of the curve, and I think they were pretty stoked on me. They let me get away with my general mischief of leaving town constantly and <laughs> missing classes periodically, that oh, kind of thing. Goodness. the general gypset. <laughs> <laughs> So you ended up getting through this teacher training and immediately started teaching. Well, yeah. I mean, not exactly immediately, because at the time that I was completing my training, I was living back and forth between the U.S. and France. I was living half time, half the time in Paris. And so that was an interesting component of learning yoga, too, because I completed my teacher training in Arizona at Sumit's, but then I was spending so much time in Paris, and at the time I thought I'd be moving there, that I started learning to teach yoga in French. Wow. So that was definitely a challenge. I thought learning yoga in English was difficult. Turns out, learning to teach yoga in French is more difficult. (laughs) Can you give us something in French that would be, say, a yoga term, like uh, slide your foot forward into Warrior One? Or something um, like that. Well, let's just do something simpler. Uh, so the challenging thing about learning to teach yoga in French for me was the duration of the words and the number of syllables, because teaching in English, you kind of get your own rhythm of speaking through a yoga class or practice. And for example, there are some people who say down dog, and there are some people who say downward dog every single time. Mm. And if the downward dog people try to say down dog, it might mess them up and vice versa. But rather than just down dog or downward dog, downward dog in French is chien tête en bas. Mm-hmm. So try like just spitting that one out real quick as you're talking through a vinyasa. Like chien unless you're chien tête en bas, and then upward dog is chien tête en haut. Chien tête en haut. Yes. <laughs> it sounds pretty. Yeah, but if you're not a native French speaker, it doesn't like flow that well mm-hmm. in terms of the actual class. So I was just kind of doing private lessons with friends in Paris and practicing my French teaching that way. And when I realized I wasn't moving to Paris and came back to the U.S. full-time, that's when I really started teaching about six months later. Oh, okay. Cool. So at the time that you were a new teacher, what were some of the main fears that you had in getting into the classroom and teaching? Or were you just like off the bat amazing? I don't know if I was off the bat amazing. I felt pretty amazing off the bat. Uh, The actual validity and reality of that statement could be up for debate, I'm sure, because I don't know if anybody's really that awesome right out of the gate at something that's a new pursuit anyway. 
Um, but yeah, I, I don't really remember being nervous at the start of it, especially with Sumit's yoga, because it was a scripted class. So, you know, once... You can't really go wrong if you You can't. It's script. like, you know, don't <laughs> cough or like mess up in your class. And that was about it. Like if you know the words and your tone of voice isn't horrible, you can basically teach the class. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't a lot to be nervous about. It was more actually... It's a weird cycle. So I came right out of the gate with Sumit's yoga and felt super confident in my teaching and experienced that for probably a year or so, maybe a little less than that, until I started doing Baron Baptiste training. And it was actually after my, let's see, level three Baptiste training that I experienced my first real bout of feeling self-conscious as a teacher, which is an odd order because you'd think it would be at the beginning, but in fact I had been confident for so long and then I just got checked. My confidence got checked and it was really hard to come back to teaching after that, shockingly. You'd think with more information one would be more confident as a teacher, but some of the information that I learned forced me to really question where I was deriving my confidence from as a teacher. Wow. And so can you tell us about the experience of being checked? Well, I mean, it it starts in a foundational way. Uh, Baptiste yoga is very much not scripted. It's about speaking from the heart and no two teachers will teach the same perfect class because they each have to be authentic to who they are and teach the, the right class for them, which may not be the right class for me or you, and that's fine. But coming from a background of being purely a scripted teacher, which I learned once I was there that I basically could have been a monkey. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it wasn't anything about who I was There's or what no I brought as an individual to the yoga class. It was about me doing my best version of somebody else's best class. Mm. And I never really knew how limiting that was until I was on the other side of it and having people yell at me at this Baptiste training to drop my script. And it drove me insane. Like, I was so comfortable with that script. I took a lot of confidence from the fact that I had it memorized so much better than most other people. And once I started to drop the script, I had to really look a lot more at the words that I was saying and the meaning behind them because I wasn't just regurgitating somebody else's feelings anymore. I was having to check in, figure out what my own were and how I wanted to communicate those. And I'd never had to do that before. Wow. (laughs) So immediately, did you feel a sense of vulnerability having to come from a place of your heart? I'm not the biggest fan of being vulnerable (laughs) a lot of the time. So I felt an immense fear and an immense lack of being good enough because once I dropped the script, I felt for a long time like I didn't really have anything worth saying. And what Mm. an awful way to feel. So that was a big part of it. I had to figure out what I wanted to say and then start saying it because I realized that I hadn't really been talking at all. Mm, so what did you say when you found those words? <laughs> you know, I'm, I think I'm still in the process of finding them, to be honest, but I think I just started living my truth a whole lot more, which changes from day to day, but I think sort of the general chord that goes throughout that's always there connecting everything is just listening to yourself and not being afraid of what other people will think or the fact that they may disagree with what you're doing. If you know that it's right in your heart, you just have to go for it because the opinion that matters most is your own. Each of our own point of views define our perspective of the world. So 
it's up to each of us to live the life that we want to live. And once, you know, I got a better idea of the life I wanted to live and started really focusing on step-by-step decision-making plans to lead my life in that direction, a lot started changing. And it became more about speaking from experience than speaking from somebody else's experience. But before that, I don't think I really had enough of my own experiences to talk about. And that was what checked me so much. You know, it's, I, I didn't, I wasn't abused growing up. I haven't had any of these, you know, really difficult life things happen. I've just sort of had your average, like, bland, privileged white girl difficulties. So I felt like I didn't really have a great platform to stand on and speak from. I didn't have anything that I had really overcome except sort of my own melodramas and (laughs) depression, but not even a deep depression. It was just sort of apathy. I guess that's the biggest thing I had overcome up until that point. Hmm. What do you think was the root of your apathy? Lack of gratitude. Hmm. I think when you grow up with everything being handed to you pretty easily, and not even just by my parents, I mean, call it a charmed life or what you will, but I mean, the universe or the cosmos or whichever word you choose has just handed me an incredible amount of abundance. And I think sometimes when you're so used to things being that way, it's hard to be grateful for it. Hmm. So what in your life changed that helped you to see how important it was to be grateful for what you had? I started surrounding myself with people who were different from me. I think seeing some of my friends' reactions to the same opportunities that I was getting gave me a really good barometer of not necessarily how I should be feeling, but how I could be feeling. Yeah. So you were able to understand more so from observing other people's perspectives. Yeah, exactly. I think I had spent a lot of time in my life for various strategic reasons, purposely learning to be unimpressed as a rule. And it was when I realized that and started to drop that and invite the sensation of being impressed back into my life rather than trying to feel, you know, come off like I had seen everything before, that it made me a lot more grateful. Hmm, that's beautiful. Um, I feel that this really resonates a lot with me simply because Um, I came from, I wouldn't say a very privileged background, but I came from a background of um, a lot of information being provided to me at an early age. So with that amount of information, my observance of the world was very different, almost more mature than most of the people my age. So I oftentimes hung out with people who were older than me, and therefore it gave me a perspective that was very, I've seen this before, And when I was hanging out with peers who were my same age, it was kind of like, what are you guys doing? Like, this is so adolescent and immature, you know? Yeah, it's like you almost want to judge it. Like, how could you be impressed by this? Like, I've seen this before. But it's from ego. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. And what you said about gratitude, having the, the gratitude of being able to observe others and understand where they are in their process while at the same time witnessing how beautiful and beneficial they are to your process, I think is really like the key. Hmm. (laughs) I I had a similar experience to that just because when I, I mean, I never really got into trouble, but you know, just the average teenage trouble that one will get into. I, well, 
I don't know, I used to like sneaking out of school a little bit to go make <laughs> mischief. And so I was getting in a bit of trouble. And I think most people, when they get quote unquote sent away by their parents, usually get sent to summer camp or some sort of reform institute. But my brilliant parents decided to send me to Paris with my best friend and no adults <laughs> chaperones to go live at the Sorbonne and take a college French program. Um, and suffice to say, I, I did not really show up for school there. And I managed to get a B plus, long story, <laughs> but I didn't really show up and it was just more of the same. But then I got back and it was that sensation that you're talking about where it's like, really? High school parties? You have to steal vodka from your parents? <laughs> Please. <laughs> So at this point in time, I mean, you got back from a whole entire another country where living, I'm sure, as a, what were you, like, 18? No, I was 16 then. Wow. So, so that was a hard wake-up call, going from being able to go to nightclubs and basically drink anywhere as long as you're tall enough for your chin to touch the bar, back to the U.S. <laughs> where I was expected to be about 10 years old and do what felt at that point like very childish activities. Okay, so... So you had this vast world perspective now, and we're going back to now teaching at the level three level of Baron Baptiste. <laughs> and when did you start to gain back your confidence? When did you start to really see that the value that you were presenting to the people in your class was actually something that was helping them on their path? Well, I stopped teaching altogether, actually, for a while following that because I just truly felt like I had no business calling myself a yoga teacher because I didn't have anything to teach people. And I didn't feel like just talking people through some physical poses was really enough to bring to the table and feel confident in attaching that title to myself. Um, and then I, let's see, I was in Michigan, actually, with my family at our summer house in this little town called Glen Arbor. And it's a very seasonal town, so you have, you know, they call them the fudgies. The fudgies? The, yeah, the people, because there's a lot of fudge up there. They're famous for their fudge in northern Michigan. So the summer <laughs> folk, the summer tourists are, you know, affectionately or not so affectionately called the fudgies by the locals because they all come up there to eat the fudge in the summer. <laughs> but so I was there and it's a pretty small town and the best yoga studio is about 35 to 40 minutes away in another bigger town. And, you know, the demographic of people that come up to this little small town is generally pretty wealthy. So I made the leap that a lot of the people that were vacationing in this town affording these home rentals uh, probably practiced yoga back home and didn't really want to drive 40 minutes to get to this other studio. So just really purely from a business frame of mind, I opened a pop-up yoga studio and in having it be my studio and my classes and my vibe, it was the first time that I had ever gotten to choose everything. Like with Sumit's, it was not my words. And with Baptiste, it was not entirely my voice. It was like I was talking louder than my natural way is and still trying to be another version of myself that wasn't necessarily entirely authentic. It was closer, but still not there. But then when I had my own studio and I got to design everything myself and really make the entire experience my own. I think that's when I started to get some of my confidence back as a teacher. Wow, that's absolutely beautiful. I would say that the students themselves that I encountered in Michigan did a lot towards bringing back my confidence as a teacher too, 
because it was an odd series of events. I came out of my Baptiste training feeling so not good enough, and I jumped straight back into trying to teach yoga in Scottsdale, where at the time, the majority of the students in my classes were sort of very entitled, very ungrateful, wealthy women. And they used to be so mean to me. Like, they would walk, like, roll up their mats loudly in the middle of class, stomp out of the room, slam the door, and then leave me nasty notes on the sign-in book that I could find when I finished the class and went out there. And so I was already feeling pretty insecure in my teaching, and then I had these people just be awful to me, and the opposite of grateful to me showing up as a teacher to facilitate that experience and hold that space for them. So I think that just added fuel to the fire of me, like, not wanting to be a part of this whole yoga thing anymore. And then when I was in Michigan, the students were so different. They were so grateful. All of these women were the same sort of entitled, wealthy women, but the situation was completely different because they were used to having to drive 45 minutes to get to this other studio and maybe like the class, maybe not. And now they were so grateful to be able to drive five or seven minutes to my class that they really loved. And the amount of gratitude and good vibes and smiling in that room made me want to teach yoga again and made me want to help people again because I I didn't feel that way when I left Scottsdale and left teaching there. Wow. So how long were you the facilitator owning basically your teaching style and owning your own studio. How long did that last? Just for a summer. Like I said, it's a seasonal town, so it's only really alive from probably about like the end of May until sort of the beginning to the middle of September. And after that, you know, everything kind of is shuttered until the summer comes back again. So it was just an experiment. I wanted to show myself I could do it. And then I did, and then I checked that one off the list. <laughs> So you didn't sustain it, you didn't upkeep it, you didn't sell it off, you were just like, this is something I really want to do, had the experience, took from it what you would, and then just non-attachment threw it away. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't sell the name or anything, I sold the supplies, I or donated or something, the extra yoga mats that I had and things like that. Awesome, so right after that, what was your next thing to check off the list? <laughs> Well, uh, right after that, I went to Burning Man for my first time, actually. Wow, how'd before, you get there? Well, before the studio was closing, uh, as I said, it's seasonal, so towards the end of the summer, it had really started slowing down, and, you know, as lovable as I am, I hadn't made a ton of local friendships, so I was pretty bored and pretty lonely up there, living in this house at the end of a dirt road with, like, only forest and coyotes that would howl at night on the other side. So, all by yourself? All by myself, yeah. I was like oh. the weird, cute hermit at the end of the road. Oh. <laughs> so Little gypsy at the, the forest mermaid? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> but not that mermaidy, I don't think. It was just like the forest hermit. Oh. Um, but a good friend of mine, who actually is the friend who introduced me to Instagram, she favors pretty prominently at general turning points in my life, but hmm. she uh, was working for my ex-boyfriend, and she invited me to join them to go to Burning Man for my birthday. Wow. And I had always kind of been curious about it, but I think I was afraid to go, but I was just bored enough and just lonely enough to jump at the opportunity. <laughs> it's always just that perfect timing when someone hits you with a new opportunity where you're like, you know, I could actually try that. <laughs> <laughs> so you decided to go from little old Michigan to Burning Man. What made the opportunity tempting enough for you to actually say yes to Burning Man? 
I think it was a combination of things. On the one hand, as I said, I was bored enough and lonely enough that you could have invited me to go cow tipping in a field or something, and I, <laughs> I probably would have jumped at the opportunity. But beyond that, I had always been curious about Burning Man. I didn't even really know what it was. Like, I didn't even have entirely a vision in my mind of what I expected it to look like. I just knew it was going to be this otherworldly spectacle that would impact my life in some way. And I didn't even have an expectation for what that would be. I guess it was just something that was supposedly like Mad Max that involved a lot of cool people and could change your life. And that sounded completely scary and like something I just had to go to. <laughs> That's pretty wild. So for your first Burning Man, what was the experience and what made it an actual memorable experience? <laughs> um, let's see, what was memorable about it? I think the most memorable thing about that first Burning Man was the idea of catharsis through fire, whether metaphorical or literal. And I feel like that's kind of a reoccurring theme in my life. Like when I did my Baptiste trainings, at the end of each one, they usually have some sort of ceremony, whether it's, you know, taking the story that you tell yourself that's no longer serving you anymore and throwing it into a fire or these various different things. Or you look at Tony Robbins and he has you like walk over hot coals. And it's just, you know, even in historical literature and religious texts, like there's something about cleansing through fire. And I think that, you know, a few things had happened in a row, like my experiences at Baptiste training and, you know, owning the studio and then getting ready to close it, that I had a lot that I was holding on to that I was ready to let go of. And I've never necessarily been a joiner, so to speak. But at Burning Man, they have these different tenets that, you know, you should ideally follow if you want to have the most enlightened, great experience. And one of the tenets is radical participation and radical inclusion. And so where usually I may not be a joiner and I may not experience that full cathartic effect because I wouldn't, like, give over to it, I sort of forced myself to follow that and radically participate and radically include myself in anything that seemed interesting without fear of rejection. And in doing that, I think I really opened myself up to having that full cathartic experience of like letting go by way of metaphorical and literal fire. So you went to Burning Man and had this absolutely amazing experience of like truly being inclusive of everyone and everything that came your on your path? Well, I think in truly putting myself out there to be included. I'm not typically the most social person and or the most vulnerable person necessarily. I'm very, I can appear vulnerable because I'm very picky about which situations I'll be vulnerable in. Um, but I think there are so many times where I want to be a part of something and I'm afraid to put myself out there and potentially be rejected and not included in this thing that I want to be included in. And I guess it was for me, radical, because I always include other people. I would never want anybody to feel excluded, but it was sort of in another way, the radical inclusion was radically putting myself out there to be included when otherwise I may have been fearful of rejection and missed out on this activity or watched from the sidelines rather than actually being a part of it because I was too afraid to ask. Hmm. So what was one of the main lessons that you took away from that Burning Man trip? Well... One of the things that I think makes the whole experience so special is just 
the actual the absolute lack of caring of what other people think as the general rule and way of being there. Like when I try to describe Burning Man to people, I say that it's a really beautiful place where you can fly your freak flag as high as you can possibly conceive. Because the <laughs> thing is, you fly your freak flag as high as you can possibly conceive, and then you look to your left and your right, and there are people on both sides of you whose freak flags are flying like three times higher than whatever you conceived. So <laughs> you can be the craziest, most open, vulnerable version of yourself without fear of reproach because everybody's doing it. And that was really freeing for me because I can be sort of a reserved person sometimes and not let all of that out and not let my entire light shine because I'm afraid I'm going to blind people potentially. Um, mm. But so I guess the big question was now having experienced that, how do I bring that back into my own life? Like that's always the thing. You go to these events, be it Baron Baptiste or Tony Robbins or Burning Man, and you light this fire within your heart and your soul and yourself. And then it's like, you know, you have to keep stoking that fire as you get back or it starts to burn out. And that's a question that I think I'm still work working on tackling and finding the answer to. But the way that my life has changed since that experience has been very much in a way where I'm keeping my life constantly interesting and challenging so that I'm always sort of stoking that fire and stepping out of my comfort zone and seeing the value in that. But then in doing so, also seeing the value of my comfort zone. Hmm. That makes sense. And I, I really wanted to touch on stoking the fire and just as yogis, I feel that it's so important to cultivate what they call in yoga, Agni, like that continuous heat, like that, the tapas, it's the transformation fire that allows us to be able to become the most true, shining, passionate versions of ourselves that we can be. Um, with that being said, how do you feel that today you're continuously stoking that fire? Is it through travel? Is it through, um, you know, the writing that you do? Is it through, Gypset goddess as the Instagram personality, what do you feel is stoking that fire that allows you to continuously create such beautiful things? It's a constantly evolving stoking of the fire. I, I think it really changes from day to day because there are certainly times where I'm the absolute opposite of inspired and my fires just, you know, some red burning embers that could not even be called a fire in a generous way. That's when I blow on them. Yeah, exactly. That's Come when on, you need Gypset. a little help from a friend Let's to go. help stoke Let's your go. fire. <laughs> but I think it's a constant practice and certainly travel helps with it. But I mean, I think it's so much more foundational than that. Like you look at Burning Man and why is that such a worthwhile experience? It's something for me, it was something scary that I didn't know if I could do or not. And then I stepped into it and I showed myself the truth that like, A, I could do it, B, it wasn't scary, and C, I could in fact thrive in this environment that I thought I might even might not even survive in. And I think that that process is really what stoking the fire is about. It's taking something that scares you or that challenges you or that you don't think you're good enough for or that you don't think you could ever do and then just trying it anyway and taking whatever you learn from that and applying it to your life to keep stoking that fire. Mm. That it, makes perfect sense. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily like anything you can make a to-do list on. It's just a way of being and a way of living where instead of shying away from challenges and fears, you step towards them and face them. Wow, that's so, that's like a golden nugget right there. Instead <laughs> of shying away from the challenges, step towards them and go forth with confidence. 
Um, so I wanted to talk about some of the things that you have gone forth with confidence, some of the awesome partnerships that you have with amazing companies that are doing great things all around the world, and maybe even some of the projects that you're working on that have to do with what you truly want to bring to the yoga culture today. Probably my biggest successful creative endeavor is in my capsule collection partnership with Aloe Yoga, where we design Gypset Goddess for Aloe Yoga together, which is kind of cool because having a clothing line of some sort was a lifelong dream ever since I was a kid. And then once yoga had such a large impact on my life and started playing a larger role, then I sort of specified that dream to, rather than have a clothing line of some sort, have a yoga clothing line. But the stumbling block is that I don't actually do fashion drawings or sew, or really have any of the skills to traditionally design clothing. And so I think it's such a testament to the new world that we live in where someone like me with little to no design expertise but a strong aesthetic and a strong ability to communicate can through Instagram and through the internet connect with a really large brand who recognizes that aesthetic and is willing to believe in it and invest in it. Wow, so they actually asked you to now design your own brand or your own collection, right? Within the Aloe Yoga Yes, exactly. So it's all under the Aloe Yoga umbrella, and just one of the spokes of that umbrella is Gypset Goddess for Aloe. Wow. And so when you say, like, your design aesthetic, like, I already know that you're very intuitive and very fashionable, but how is it now taking that intuitive fashion sense into a brand like say aloe and creating something that is now the gypset goddess brand like how how did you actually like bring forth your ideas and make them into pants it's different every time i don't really follow a traditional design process for example the most popular pair of leggings that came out of the collaboration have been the butterfly leggings that we did together Mm -hmm. and The inspiration for those is actually the migration of monarch butterflies. As they're migrating south each year, they stop in a few places along the west coast, like Santa Barbara, and a few places throughout Mexico, and they all group together on the trunks of these trees. And I saw a photo of it, and I just thought it was so cool, and I printed out that photo and brought it in and said, now guys, look at this photo. This is it. Now imagine if that tree trunk was a leg (laughs) and the butterfly leggings were born. Wow. So I can totally imagine you saying exactly that. I'm pretty sure I may have said it in those exact words. (laughs) (laughs) So it's really awesome that you're bringing forth your creative, intuitive nature and really, I would say, bring some life to those yoga pants. Like, your your designs are pretty dope. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not kidding you. Like they they have a lot of uh, natural aesthetic to them, and I would say you being my roommate, I'm a nature baby. Like I love nature. Like when we adventured through Kauai, you saw me like jumping in puddles and jumping <laughs> in the water, swimming off the jet ski into the water, jumping off the cliff, all that kind of stuff. Like I love the water. So where would you say like your draw towards nature was first born 
I think it was there as long as I can remember. I lived in Detroit until I was five, so those are kind of the only hazy years. And I think we lived on a golf course or something, so it's not as if we had a small backyard, but where my memories really kind of start is once we moved to the house that my mom still lives in, in Franklin, Michigan. And I think we had about an acre and a quarter of land or so around our house. And so even as a kid, I just remember running through the woods. There's this these woods behind our house with a little river that goes through. And I can remember like playing in the river and the woods and the next door neighbors had a big pond and this amazing weeping willow tree that I would go hide under and I think it was just there from the start, and early on, I think my entire life actually, my parents would take us up to that town, Glen Arbor, every summer to go stay in cabins and swim in the lake and go out on the boat, and my family always owned land right by Lake Michigan, so we would go camping. I think it was just instilled in me from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, the gypsy persona, like everything I see is travel with you, and you're really like going from places like Ireland to Kauai to Cambodia and Thailand <laughs> and all over the place. So, like, what does Gypset Goddess mean? What does it mean? It's so funny because this name has taken on such a life of its own, and it was such an accidental thing at its inception. Uh, gypset is gypsy plus jet set. And it's funny because Gypset Goddess was never... I never really planned to make it a brand or a brand name or anything like that. I was just sort of lonely and bored, and a friend suggested that I join Instagram, and I did, but I needed to come up with a name for it. And I thought, what do I like? Yoga, travel, and fashion. That's Those are the things I like. And so then I, I wanted to, without being too on the nose, come up with a name that sort of involved all of those aspects of things I love in my life. And so... I came up with Gypset, and that sort of covers the fashion and the travel, because Gypset is a way of being. It's not the jet set, but it's not a gypsy either. It's this cool mix of bourgeois, bohemian, that's like a way of living, a way of dressing, a way of being. So I'm like, okay, fashion, travel, Gypset, check. But you know, Gypset yoga, that was not inspiring to me. And so I, again, I didn't want to be too on the nose. So I was like, how can I tie in yoga without saying yoga or Mm. using Sanskrit or I don't know, like any of the immediate go-tos that you would go to. So I finally just was thinking, I was trying to keep it as basic as I could because my dad growing up always told me that if you have to explain a a name, then it's not a good name. And he was talking in the context of business. Like if you name your business something and you have to explain it, you've chosen a bad name. It Mm -hmm. should be self-explanatory. And so I guess I sort of took that into creating my Instagram name and I thought it shouldn't be something that I have to explain. So I just thought, goddess, how perfect. It's a very foundational archetypal idea in yoga, sure, but in so many other world religions as well. And it's sort of the epitome of what I wanted to talk about. All women are goddesses, and in practicing yoga, we tap into that inner goddess. And you know, there are all these directions that you can take it. So once I put Gypset and Goddess together, all of a sudden the light bulb went on, and it was like, yes, this is the right name. This is what I was trying to say. And then it sort of took on a mind of its own, and people told me I should change it to Caitlin Turner 9,000 times, but I just always liked it, so I kept it. I like it too. I like the idea of goddess because I feel that it's so often now that women, instead of honoring one another and 
uplifting one another are constantly tearing each other down with, you know, sly comments and just judgment, just overall judgment when women can uplift one another and how men as well can uplift women and make them feel good and honorable and worthy of the respect that they should own and that they should have and that they should have instilled within their minds knowing that they deserve it because like you said a goddess is an archetype it's a beautiful idea of divine feminine exactly well and i think so often in society these days as women we're sort of told that it's not okay to think of ourselves as goddesses that it's not okay to tap into that i mean i even experienced you know i got a lot of flack in the beginning for the name because there were all of these judgy unfortunately judgy yoga people who would comment on it and be like oh your head's so far up your ass like how can you like the self-proclaimed goddess like really you think you're so special you can call yourself a goddess and granted I don't respond to negativity but in my head I was thinking yes I am that special I can give myself the title of being a goddess because that's what I feel that I am and so can every woman and how dare anybody tell me not to feel that way? And, you know, I think at first when I was getting that flack, the scared part of me wanted to change the name so that I could just not deal with it. But then I thought, no, actually, it makes a lot of sense to keep this because I can be an example of the fact that it's okay to love yourself and it's okay to think that you're a goddess. And it doesn't mean you have your head up your ass or that you have a huge ego. It means that you're in touch with your sacred feminine and all women should have that. Drop the mic. <laughs> Wow. I feel that so much of you is misunderstood. And I would say even from the time before I knew who you were, I had this, you know, this idea of who you were only by your Instagram. And now in meeting you and being able to see the true beauty of your concepts and your your thought process and how intelligent you are and really understanding your value, it makes me like you so much more you know that's generally the response I get it's so disappointing every time people meet me they're like man you're so much cooler than I thought you were it's like god what am I putting out there on Instagram to have everybody think I'm so unfun and uncool (laughs) well I think that you know Instagram is only one lens it's only one perspective of the many facets of you yeah that's of us all it's you know it's only how much we reveal to others that they can actually see. Well, I just, I think so many people looking from the outside in like to put me or you or other people with large social media followings up on a pedestal. And at first I used to be kind of offended when people would give me the old, like, you're so much cooler than I thought. But then I started checking in and realizing that I'm so much cooler than who they thought I was. Mm-hmm. And that's in no way a comment on who I actually am. I, you know, I like to joke that so many people who follow me think that, you know, I, I don't like to have any fun and all I do is meditate all day and I must subsist only on air. And <laughs> But of course it's not like that. And I think when people say you're so much cooler than I thought, it's because they put me on some pedestal that was not entirely human or not entirely connectable, relatable, not entirely fun. And then they meet me in real life and realize I'm just as human as they are with my own faults and my own ways of having fun. Hmm, that's beautiful. I want to touch on some of the key tips you feel are 
evident in being a, I would say like an Instagram personality as well as sustaining a, a valued lifestyle of honoring yourself. That's a constant battle, one that I don't always win, to be honest. I think so much of life is about that battle for balance. And it's just like that with Instagram. I mean, sometimes I sort of joke that Gypset Goddess and Caitlin Turner are two different people. And the challenge is always to find the balance between the two, between I think Gypset Goddess is so much of who I want to be and Caitlin Turner is so much of who I am. And you have to find the balance between the two when I'm focusing too much on how I want to be perceived and like how this persona of mine is being perceived, then that will take my life in a direction that I don't really like. But when I'm not worrying enough about the perception of others, I'm not saying worry about this a lot, but you still have to be aware of it in order to function in life. And I think when I go too much into myself and I'm too much in my own head and my own thoughts and what I think being right, it sort of makes me blind to a lot of lessons that I think are really important to learn. So it's finding that balance between who you are day to day and what that means and what alter ego you carry around with you and what that means and how to merge the two together into one cohesive whole. Mm, it's kind of like walking the thin line between the future and the past and all of the options of where you can go and who you are versus all of the past, what I would call impressions of who you used to be. It's like being in the present is literally a mixture of who you want to become and who you were before. Well, it's a funny question, too, because, you know, it's sort of a paradox. How authentic can you really be when you're thinking about a photo being taken or a video being made? So is anybody truly authentic on their Instagram? No, I don't really think so, because you're still aware of the fact that there was a camera there. And sure, maybe it was a candid photo that you weren't aware of, but then you're aware that you're posting it and you're aware of what you're writing to go with it. <laughs> so I think it's a matter of being as authentic as you can while doing what you're doing, which doesn't necessarily encourage authenticity in the big scheme of things. Wow. That's a big one. That's a, a, big, a big one to think about because the truth of it is that Yes, we are projecting a persona that is hopefully a true reflection of ourselves. And it's only up to us to decide how much of that photo is actually the truest version of our passion, of our persistent path towards the most true version of ourselves. Well, and it's how you speak about that moment, too. I mean, let's take a really easy yoga example. I am a practitioner that wants to post yoga photos on Instagram, and I've been working a lot on handstands, but I can't actually do one yet. I can only hold it for a second. And so I do my handstand, and I have a friend snap a photo, and but like now what I write about it is going to discern whether I'm being authentic or not, because I know in my heart that I only did this handstand for a second, and that it's not part of my practice, and that I got a lucky shot, basically. And so to go then and post the photo and say like, oh, handstands on the beach at sunset would not be authentic. Yes, you did do a handstand on the beach at sunset, but you're kind of portraying that something happened that didn't really happen versus 
handstands on the beach at sunset, I'm really happy that I got this lucky shot. It inspires me to keep practicing my handstands even more until I can really hold a handstand like this. Now, both are true, both happened, but which one is more authentic? And honestly, I think I'd like the latter because the latter shows so much more vulnerability. It shows so much more of who that person is, recognizing that they're on a path, on a practice towards the continual uncovering of their truest self. And that is the vulnerability of being able to speak from your truth. Well, and that's the relatability too, because the reason that it's relatable is because we're all on that same journey, so we can relate to that. But, you know, if this person in this hypothetical example just posts that handstand photo and says handstands on the beach at sunset, that's already kind of the end of the journey. Like, one can only look at that and assume that she's already practiced her handstands forever and now can hold it like it's nothing with ease, and that's why she took this photo and posted it. So I think that perfection is not really relatable because we're all on the journey. It's hard to relate to somebody that's finished the journey and is now showing you the result. Mm, so true. So I want you to give our listeners three tips on how they can become more vulnerable and thus more valuable as someone who presents their truth, as someone who's genuine and authentic on social media because I feel you to be someone who is truly genuine and authentic in presenting yourself as you are. That's so funny because vulnerability scares me so much. So as you were asking that question, I was in my head saying to myself, man, I'm the worst person to ask this question to. I don't like vulnerability at all. I avoid vulnerability. But, you know, as much as I avoid it, I also do face it head-on sometimes, and I guess my tips for being vulnerable, and this is a major, like, practice what you preach moment that I should take my own advice, but let's see, my three tips to vulnerability. I would say believe that your contribution has value. I think so often we're afraid to say something in a conversation or propose an idea or anything like that because we don't believe that that idea or that addition to the conversation has an inherent value that deserves to be heard. So I think a huge part of putting yourself out there is believing that it will benefit the world or your listener for you to put that out there and believing that you have that to give. So that would be number one. Uh, number two is be mindful in the way that you say things and you'll be able to say anything to anyone. Wow. That's a big one. (laughs) I've found, you know, I think in a lot of my friendships and relationships, I'm, I'm known as somebody that's quite straightforward and very much unafraid of telling it like it is to your face. Um, And the reason that I'm known that way is because I am quick to tell people the truth and I'm not, I don't shy away from sharing difficult truths. I'm not afraid of it because I really care about the people in my life and if I honestly believe it would help them to have this information, it doesn't matter if it's scary to tell them. You have to do it because you care about them. And so it's just been a practice of mine for a long time to just really be mindful with the way that I say things and make sure that in my tone as I'm sharing these words that are maybe hard to hear, it's very clear like what place within me this information is coming from and why and the purpose of it. And I've found that you can tell people just about anything, especially things that they really don't want to hear if you just say it the right way. That is so true. 
And so the third one would be to quote Richard Branson, screw it, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just have to put yourself out there because you believe that your words have merit and you'll deal with the consequences later. That is so awesome. That's the truth. <laughs> so the three tips in being vulnerable and coming from your truth and really aligning with your authenticity. I really enjoy those. Thanks. They were kind of on the fly, but in fact, I enjoy them too, thinking mm -hmm. back. <laughs> so with that being said, Gypset, can you leave our Yoga Revealed listeners, some of whom are teachers already, yoga practitioners, they may be on their way to yoga right now, one golden nugget, something that they can really take from value and consistently keep in their mind as something to help them and motivate them on their path of yoga? I would say fly your freak flag as high as you can at all times because, you know, your freak flag is just a metaphor for whatever it is that's unique about you. And when you're projecting and promoting your beautiful uniqueness out there to the world, amazing things will come of it and you'll have opportunities that you never even considered were possible or never even knew that you wanted and just all of these things will come into your path. It's sort of like if you're walking through a pitch black forest but then you start shining your inner light, all of a sudden you can see everything around you. You can see that there were all these trees, all these plants, maybe a river that you couldn't see before, but now that you've turned on your inner light, it's all visible. And I think that that's such a good metaphor for life because when your inner light is on, all of a sudden you can see all of these opportunities for relationship, connection, you know, whatever it is that you didn't even know were there before. Hmm. That's absolutely beautiful. Fly your freak flag. You guys hear that? Yoga Revealed listeners, fly your freak flag. Straight from Gypset Goddess, thank you so much for your time today. Our listeners are absolutely enlightened by your happiness and enriched by your knowledge. I truly <laughs> appreciate you for your time today. Namaste. Thank you for tuning into the Yoga Revealed podcast. You can learn more about Gypset Goddess and her inspiring work at gypsetgoddess.com. Make sure to check out her amazing Instagram page as well, at gypsetgoddess on Instagram for daily inspiration. And special treat, Yoga Revealers, we are hosting a yoga challenge on Instagram where you can win a free, yes I said it, free 200-hour yoga teacher training. That's big time. Find more details on how to enter and win at yogarevealed.com slash teacher. Beginner yogis, just like you, are entering daily, so make sure that you have your chance to win. If you're looking to deepen your understanding of yoga, there is no better time than now. Make sure to check out yogarevealed.com slash teacher now to learn how. We have a passion for expanding our knowledge and growing a conscious community with your participation. So make sure to sign up and enter to win until next time, yogis, live light, shine bright. Blessings. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 